Okay, good morning again. Um, I bring you greetings from your sister church, uh, Christ Central Presbyterian Church in Virginia. You know, our church, we pray for you guys all the time. Once a month in our worship services, we pray for you. We pray that God would make your gospel ministry faithful and fruitful in Southern California, that the kingdom of God might be expanded and extended because of this church. We love you guys, and uh, we're honored and delighted to call you our sister church. Um, so we live in a fractured world. Uh, people are lonely. Uh, we're more connected than we've ever been through social media, like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter, whatever it is. But we experience less true community more than ever before. I have a 16-year-old daughter. Her name's Abby. And I remember one time she had like four or five friends over. And they were in the living room, sitting together, but each one was on their cell phone. I think they were texting one another. They don't know how to have a conversation face-to-face, right? So connected, and yet people are so lonely. You see, as human beings, we need community. We long for community. And the reason for that is because we're created in the image of a God who himself dwells in community. Did you think about that? God is one, but God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who dwell together, who love together, who love one another in community, but is one God. And because we're created in the image of a God who himself dwells in community, we are designed and created for, we, we long for community, right? When you feel lonely, when you ache for a friend, it means that you're human because you're created for community. And as Christ followers, as those who believe the gospel, We absolutely need community because our spiritual maturity in Christ depends on our living together in community. In fact, I'm going to argue with you this morning or or let you know that you cannot obey Jesus fully or know Jesus fully apart from living in community with other Christ followers. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. This is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, uh, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel means good news. It's not good advice for you to follow, but it's good news for you to believe. You see, the, the gospel tells us that God has done something really, really good and really, really important in this world and in our lives. You see, the gospel tells us the true story about God, how God created the world and created it very good, a world for shalom, peace, human flourishing, harmony, joy. 
But sin entered into the world and sin ruined everything. You see, everything that's broken in this world, everything that's broken in you and broken in me is because of sin. But God, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, in Jesus, came into our world to save our world. And he saved and redeemed our world by dying on the cross for us in order to pay for the penalty of all of our sins. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead to to publicly declare and demonstrate that all of our sins have been paid for and to demonstrate his victory over death. Do you know that this Jesus who rose again on, on Easter Sunday is still alive today? You can't see him because he's in heaven, but he's alive, ruling and reigning. But one day you will see him when he comes again. And when he comes again, he will make all things new and all things right. Everything broken in this world, everything broken in you will finally be healed. And we will be what we were supposed to be. And everything will be as God intended. And this is the gospel story. The true story about God, it's a beautiful story. It's not fiction. It's not fake news. It's real news. It's, it's, an abs- it's the truest story ever told. And for those of us who believe this gospel story, two things happen. The first thing that happens, uh, as, uh, the first thing that happens because of our faith in the gospel is that we're reconciled to God, right? When we believe the gospel, we receive the full forgiveness of all of our sins. We receive the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We receive adoption to be sons and daughters of God, beloved children of God, blessed heirs of the kingdom. You see, when we believe this gospel, we enter into a new relationship with God. God is no one, someone, no longer someone we need to fear or, or, or be afraid of, but God is someone that we can run to and love. Because when we believe the gospel, uh, we are in Christ. And do you know what that means? That when we're in Christ, that means that when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus. And he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And so the first thing that the gospel does is it reconciles us to God. But it also does something else. It also reconciles us horizontally with others who believe the gospel, with others who are the, uh, the, for, uh, the forgiven and forever loved children of God. You see, the gospel doesn't just bring us into a relationship with God. It also brings us into a relationship with God's people. The gospel doesn't just save us from our sin, it also saves us from our solitude. You see, the Apostle Paul said that the gospel creates a new humanity, a new people. It creates a new community of people, a collection of people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus so that they can live together as a family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, the gospel creates the church. A church that's united as one, living together under the headship of the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church. So, today, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, then I want to tell you today that you need the church. And you need to live in community with the church. You see, church and community are not optional for the Christian. It's a necessity. You were saved into the church, which is the body of Christ. You cannot follow Jesus without being a part of his body. And you can't experience the spiritual growth and maturity that God intends for you when you live in isolation. You see, you were never meant to grow by yourself apart from your fellowship and your participation in the life of the body, which is the church. Now, there's a lot in our text today, but I'm going to highlight two things for you. And I want to show you two reasons why Christians need to live in community with other Christ followers. Here's the first reason. 
You can only obey Jesus fully as you live in the context of Christian community. And second, you can only really know Jesus fully in the context of Christian community. So in order to obey Jesus and to know Jesus fully, you need to live in community with other Christ followers. In verses 12 uh, to 14, Jesus gives us, Jesus through the Apostle Paul gives us commands uh, that we can only really obey in the context of the church. These are uh, what I call church commands because these are commands that you can only obey when you're living in and with the church. These commands assume that you're participating in the life of the church. Now look at the commands with me in verse 12. Paul commands us to be compassionate. But you can't be compassionate by yourself, can you? Someone has to experience and receive your compassion. Paul also commands us to be kind. But you can't be kind in isolation. Somebody has to receive and experience your kindness. And Paul commands us to be humble. But you can't be humble by yourself because biblical humility, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, is putting the interests and the needs of others before your own. So you can't be humble unless you're around other people so you can put their interests and their needs ahead of your own. And Paul also commands us to be patient. But do you realize you don't have to be patient when you're by yourself? You only need to be patient when there's someone you have to wait for, when there's someone you have to put up with. Only then can you be patient. And in verse 13, Paul gives us, or Jesus through Paul gives us the command to forgive one another. And do you realize that you can't obey this command unless you spent enough time with other people so that they get on your nerves and sin against you? Only when you've been sinned against do you have the opportunity to actually forgive another person. You see, all the commands in our text today can only be obeyed if you live in community with other Christ followers. You see, if you're living in functional solitude or isolation, you cannot obey these commands. And that means that you're not able to fully obey Jesus. You can only obey Jesus fully as you participate in the life of the church. You see, to live a gospel-centered life, we talk about that a lot at all all of our Christ Central churches. To live a gospel-centered life means to treat people horizontally the way God and Christ treated us vertically. You see, the gospel motivates you to treat people graciously because the gospel tells you that God and Christ treated you graciously. The gospel empowers you to be kind, gracious, and gentle because the gospel tells you that God in Christ has been kind, gentle, and patient with you. And the gospel compels you to serve others in a sacrificial way because the gospel tells you that God in Christ has served you in the most sacrificial way, even laying down his life for you. And the gospel enables you to forgive other people when they sin against you. Because the gospel tells you that God in Christ has forgiven you when you sinned against God. You know, nobody likes conflict. Conflicts are hard, messy, and draining. But the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that conflict in the church is not a bad thing. In fact, I'm going to say that conflict in the church is a good thing. Now, before you think I'm crazy, let me tell you why I think conflict in the church is a good thing. Conflict among Christians is a good thing because conflict in the church is both proof of the gospel and an opportunity for the gospel. Did you hear that? It's both proof of the gospel and it's an opportunity for the gospel. See, conflict happens when you bring together different people. 
people from different cultures, with different personalities, with different ways of thinking, with different values, different preferences, and just different lifestyles. And that's exactly what the gospel does, doesn't it? The gospel brings together very different people so that they're to live and to serve together as the family of God. But as they live and serve together in one family, conflict between different people is inevitable. It's bound to happen. There was a man at one of my old churches. Um, I'm not going to tell you who he is. I think some of you may know who he is, so I'm going to keep this very vague. Uh, But we're different. We're as different as two guys can get. We basically only had two things in common. The first thing that we had in common is that we both loved the gospel. We both loved Jesus. And the other thing is that we both married beautiful Asian women. That's the only thing that we had in common. This man was white. I'm Asian. He's really, really smart. Me, not so much. He's a scholar. I'm an athlete, or I used to be an athlete, or I used to like to think of myself as an athlete, right? Um... He is very conservative, does extensive cost-benefit analysis, and likes to move so slow. I like to move fast. I'm a risk-taker. He's a thinker. I'm a feeler. He's quiet. His idea of a good time is to read books. I mean, I read books, but I don't like books, right? My idea of a good time is to play poker with my friends or to watch my son play basketball. We're as different as two guys can get. You see, if he didn't love the gospel, and if I didn't love the gospel, we would have nothing to do with one another. In fact, frankly, I would find him boring and uninteresting. But it was the gospel that brought two very different people together. And because we were so different, and because we were both being sanctified and wrestling with sin, we had our fair share of conflict as you try to live together and serve together in the same church. But friends, do you realize that's supposed to happen? When different people try to live and serve together, conflict happens. And the fact that very different people who normally have nothing to do with each other are experiencing conflict as they try to live together, that's proof of the gospel. You can even say the gospel creates conflict because the gospel brings sinners together. And whenever you bring sinners together, there's going to be conflict. But at the same time, conflict among Christians is also an opportunity for the gospel. You see, conflict is an opportunity for the gospel to reveal its power to reconcile. You see, the gospel doesn't just bring sinners together, it actually keeps sinners together. In his excellent book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy said that conflict is an opportunity to do three things. First, to glorify God. Second, listen to this, to serve others, even the person that you're in a conflict with, right? How crazy is that? You don't ever want to serve the person that you're in a conflict with, right? but it's an opportunity to serve the person that you're having the conflict with. And third, is an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. You see, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you don't live under his lordship, you don't have to forgive. You can hold a grudge, get even, or you can just sever the relationship that you're in a conflict with. You can just write that person off and just walk away from that relationship. And friends, we see that happening all the time in the world. But it must not be this way in the church. Not among those who who profess Jesus as Lord and who live under his lordship. It's got to be different in the church. Beautifully different. We have to be countercultural. We have to show the world what it means to be a true human community. You see, when we sin or when we get sinned against, we must forgive one another just as the Lord Jesus forgave us. 
You see, friends, the power of the gospel is beautifully revealed, powerfully, when Christians forgive one another and reconcile with one another. I know that's really easy to preach forgiveness, and it's a lot harder to practice forgiveness. But the evidence that you have personally experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ is seen in your ability and in your willingness to forgive others when they have sinned against you. If you're unwilling or unable to forgive someone, that's probably a good indicator that you yourself have not personally experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ in a deep and life-transforming way. So conflict in the church is a good thing. It's proof that the gospel brings different people together, people as different as Jew and Gentile. And it's also an opportunity for the gospel, for the power of the gospel to be displayed as it keeps different people together in community. Christ central. Jesus said that the world will know that you are his disciples by how you love one another. Do you realize that your most powerful and your most effective witness as a church is not the quality of your preaching at this pulpit on Sundays? Let me just tell you, my favorite preacher in the world is Tim Keller. But my favorite Asian American preacher in the world is Pastor Harold Kim. Um, I don't want you to tell him that because I don't want it to get to his head. But I want you to know that I think Pastor Harold is probably the most gifted Asian American preacher I've ever heard. You are a blessed church to have a man like that preach to you every Sunday. I hope you understand how blessed you are. But your most powerful witness as a church is not in the quality of your preaching. It's not even in the quality of your music, and your music is amazing. Nate Baldwin, you do an amazing job with your music. And it's not even in the, the, the modernness or the niceness of your venue, and you guys have an amazing venue here. But do you realize that your most powerful Effective witness as a church is not in that kind of stuff, but it's in your love for one another. When you love one another, when you forgive one another, when you serve one another, when you bear with one another's burdens, when you're kind to one another, that is when you're the most beautiful as a church. And that's when Jesus said, the world will know that you're my disciples when you love one another. So Christ central, I wanna encourage you, I wanna urge you to, to love one another as Jesus has loved you. I, I, your unbelieving family, your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving coworkers, they're watching you. And they want to see if this Jesus, this gospel makes any real difference in your life. Does it really make any real difference in how you treat other people? And when they see you loving one another, may others see you love one another in such a way that they say, I want to learn how to love like that because I don't see that kind of love anywhere else but in the church. May your unbelieving family and friends, may they, even if they don't believe what you believe, but may they be just awestruck by your love for one another. Amen? Be a community that deeply loves one another as you live together. So the first reason why you need Christian community is because you can only obey Jesus fully as you live in community with other Christians. But here's the second reason why you need Christian community. It's because you can only really know Jesus fully in community. Verse 16 says that the word of Christ will dwell in us and among us richly as we teach and admonish one another. It's interesting. In chapter 1, verse 28, the apostle Paul said that it was his task as an apostle to teach and admonish the church. But now in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that it's the task of the whole church 
that's the task of every Christ follower to teach and admonish one another. That means that's not just the pastors or the elders or the seminary trained professionals who are to teach and admonish in the church. It means that every Christ follower is equipped by the Holy Spirit who indwells them to teach and admonish in the church. In verse 16, Paul said, again, let the word of Christ dwell among you or dwell in you richly. What Paul means is that he wants the word of Christ to dwell richly among them as a community, as they teach and admonish one another. That means what he's expecting the church to do is to read, study, and meditate on God's word together as a community. Now, it's very important that you read uh, the word of God personally and privately. We call that quiet times or personal worship, whatever you call it. But it's very important to read and to study and to apply God's word privately and personally. But did you know that that's secondary? What's primary is that you study the word corporately with the church as a community. And the reason for that is because you're not big enough by yourself to fully understand and study God's word by yourself. There's too much of God in God's word. For you, to ever, for you to be able to see it by yourself. Let me give you an analogy. I love my wife, Margaret. We've been married for 18 years. And, um, and I know her better than I know any other human being in this world. And I remember when we were dating and when we were engaged, when we were married, just the two of us for two years, I loved getting to know my wife. And I knew her better than any other person. I thought I knew all that there was about my wife. But then God gave us kids. Three kids, Abby's 16, Caleb is 13, and Lizzie is 11. And each of my kids have brought out a side of my wife that I never saw until they came. So for example, I never thought that I would ever see my wife cheering at a basketball game. She's just not into sports, right? Uh, her, for her to go to a basketball game is as painful as it is for me to go to a museum, okay? I just hate that kind of stuff. And, and when we were dating, or actually when we were married, when we, were, when we didn't have any kids, she'd come and watch me play in this, like, a basketball league. But she would, like, I could not impress her. Now, I don't want to brag, but I used to tear it up when I was younger, right? I'm going to tear it up. But, I mean, I just could not impress her. Can we go eat now? I mean, just, there was nothing I could do to make her cheer for me. But little did I know that there is a secret cheerleader that hides inside my wife. I couldn't bring it out of her. LeBron James couldn't bring it out of her. Kevin Durant couldn't bring it out of her. Steph Curry couldn't bring it out of her. Do you know who brought that secret cheerleader my wife out? My 13-year-old son. She loves to watch Caleb play. In fact, whenever he scores, I mean, she jumps up and down and cheers so loud, it's embarrassing. One time, my son said to me, Dad, don't let mom come to my games because she's embarrassing me, right? <laughs> my wife, loud at a basketball game, who knew? I never would have known that until my son came along. You see, when I had my wife all to myself, when it was just the two of us, I actually had a lot less of my wife. But as our family grew, I actually got a lot more of my wife. I mean, let me take this a little further. In fact, there are other people in my wife's life that I need so I can see my wife in her full splendor and glory. Because there are sides of her that me and the kids cannot bring out of my wife. You see, there's a very tender side to my wife that only her dad can bring out of her. 
There's a, a loud and argumentative side to my wife that only her sisters can bring out of her. There's a spunky, sassy, fun side of her that only her college roommates can bring out of her. There's a, a, prof a professional side of my wife that only her colleagues can bring out of her. And then there's this very scary and angry side to my wife that I and I alone can bring out of her, right? <laughs> you see, the more people I have to share my wife with, the more I see of her. I see how deep, how beautiful, how fun, how wonderfully complex, and how multidimensional my wife is. You see, there is so much to my wife, I simply cannot bring it all out of her by myself. I need a whole community of people for me to really know my wife for me to fully know my wife. You see, there are sides of my wife that I never would have seen unless other people brought out those sides of her for me to see and to enjoy. And if it takes a community of people to know one human being, then how much more does it take a community of people to know God? God is too big, too wonderful, too complex that you could ever know him by yourself. We need one another. We can only really know God as we study him and his word together as a community. You see, there are things in God's word that you can't see unless someone points it out to you. And there are things in God's word that you see that others can't see unless you point it out to them. See, I need you to show me things in God's word that I don't see, and you need me to show you things in God's word that you don't see. You see, we need one another's insights. You see, we all have tendencies, don't we, when we read and study God's word. For you, maybe your tendency is to stress and emphasize the sovereignty and the power of God, and when you read the Bible, that's all you see. God is sovereign, God is powerful. Or maybe your tendency is to always see the holiness and the justice of God. And whenever you read the Bible, that's all you see. God is holy and God is just. Or maybe your tendency is to see the grace, mercy, and love of God. And all you see is when you read the Bible is God is merciful, gracious, and loving. Or maybe what your tendency is to always see the indicatives or the doctrines that describe God. Or maybe your tendency is to always see the imperatives or the duties that God requires of you. Do you see how dangerous it can be if you study the Bible all by yourself? You will tend to overemphasize the stuff about God that you like and value, and you will tend to underemphasize the stuff about God that you don't like or value. But look what happens when you get those three people together so that they can share their insights with one another. Not only do they balance one another out, but together as a community, they will see so much more about God, about what God is like than they ever would have if they studied the Bible by themselves. You know, I can't tell you how many times after um, I preach at our church, you know, a brother or sister will come up to me and say, Pastor Owen, I mean, I loved what you said, uh, ABC. I never saw that before. And it made me think about X, Y, and Z. And as I'm listening to them, right, I'm thinking, oh my God, I never would have seen that in the text unless you pointed it out to me. Or I never would have made that application, that perfect application for a church unless you showed it to me. I can't tell you how many times after a service I've, I've wanted to say, you know what, everyone, back in the room, back in the room, I want to preach that sermon one more time. Because that insight or that application would have made that sermon so much richer and better. You need the insights of your pastor, but your pastor also needs your insights. 
You all need one another's insights into God's word. You see, it's not just the job of the pastor to teach and admonish. Let me say this. As great a preacher as Harold is, if he's the only one that you're learning from, you're not learning a whole lot. You need to learn from one another. You all have experiences with God. You all have insights into God's word that's rich and beautiful. And this community needs to see what you see. And you need to see what they see. None of us are sufficient to see everything by ourselves. We need to look at God together as a community. So what? What's the takeaway for today? It's simply this. Yes, we need to gather together on the Lord's Day to worship together, to sing together, and to hear uh, God's man, which is Pastor Harold, uh, to preach to you God's word. We need that. We need to participate in the sacraments. But what I'm trying to say today is, as necessary as that is, it is not enough. It's not enough. You need to be involved in some kind of small group or community group. I don't know what you guys call it here, but some opportunity where you're spending intentional deep and intense time with other Christians. In fact, I would say this, you need to be spending enough time with other Christians where you get annoyed with people, where they have an opportunity to sin against you so you can practice patience and forgive and serve. You need to spend enough time with other people so that you see their needs so you can put their needs ahead of your own. Are you doing that? Or do you just come on Sundays, listen to some good music, listen to a talk, and then you're home by yourself in functional isolation. That's not enough. You see, friends, as Christ followers, if we are serious about obeying Jesus, if we're serious about knowing Jesus in his glorious fullness, you can't do it by yourself. You need the church. You need to live in actual functional community with other Christ followers. So Christ Central, today my exhortation to you is simple. If you're not meaningfully involved in the life uh, community of this church, I want to encourage you to do that. Take the risk of stepping in to a community where you actually get to know other people and people get to know you. Because together, together is how we're going to follow Jesus, obey Jesus, and know Jesus. Amen.